Turn your Bibles this morning to the book of Job, chapters 27 and 28 this morning. We've kind of broken free a little bit from the cycles in Job that we've gotten used to, where one of Job's counselors or friends says something, then he responds. Uh, and that was a, a real thick part of the book that we were working through. Uh, and instead, now we have a lengthy section from Job, and it's multiple chapters, and uh, he covers a lot of different things. And then a fourth guy is going to show up, Elihu, and he's going to have a lot of chapters before we get to God's response. But we're right there, kind of in the middle of Job's um, kind of summary statements, and he's really not going to speak a lot more uh, as we move forward throughout the book once we get out of these few chapters. But we're able to take chapter 27 and 28 this morning together. Um, because they all deal with the same central subject. And it has to do with him meditating on this big why question. And it's been the dominant question of the whole book. Why is this happening to me? Why does life hurt this way? Why me? Why do the wicked prosper? Why do the good suffer? Why are the righteous suffering? Why, why, why? Why don't you love me anymore, God? And these chapters really are an unveiling, an unpacking of Job's heart as he's trying to wrestle through that why question. Chapter 27 largely is addressed to his friends, these bad counselors, and how they've mishandled the why question. And then chapter 28 is his own meditation of how God has been using it in his heart and life. And maybe it'd be helpful for us to begin this way. Have you ever been in a spot where someone is explaining something to somebody else and the other person's actually the expert? Uh, and they don't even know it. Like, like one I ran across this week was this little Twitter feed that with J.K. Rowling. For those of you who don't, aren't aware, she's the one that wrote the Harry Potter series. One of the main characters, much debated in the series, is a guy named Snape. She wrote this, Snape is all gray. You can't make him a saint. He was vindictive in bully, bullying. You can't make him a devil. He died to save the wizarding world. Someone launches in and corrects her. Uh, no, he died to clear his conscience. Not realizing she wrote the books. Correcting the experts, probably not the wisest. It's another, another one that I read this week was of these uh, two folks. They were a fan of a particular movie. They were sitting in a coffee shop out in, uh, in Los Angeles, and they were debating a movie. And an older gentleman walked over to them and said, well, um, I could clear up the confusion of that. And they looked at him. They said, we don't need some old white, old white man mansplaining to us. He had actually written the movie, and they didn't know it. Uh, I think of a number of years ago, way back, I was in my early 20s, and I went to a, an event. It was a pastor's meeting. I was, I was not a pastor, but I was kind of interning at a church a little bit, and they wanted me to go. And so I went, not knowing what it was, and um, thought it would just be speakers. And they split up for lunch, and they basically said, anybody who might be interested in Bible college or seminary, we'd love for you to go to this room. And so I went in this room, and it was one of those hard cells come to our place, Right. And it was just kind of irritating to me because I didn't know I was going to a sales pitch. And, and it was pretty intense and, in my mind at the time. Um, and I really had no interest in going to this particular school at all. And, and so I just made my mind up. I was just going to be quiet and just mind my own business. I know that's stunning to believe for Steve, but that's what I was going to do. Um, I know it's also not stunning to you that I was not able to keep with that commitment. And so um, one gentleman in particular came and sat down at the table and was asking me about going, where I was going to go to seminary and what I was thinking, getting a master's degree. And, and at that point, I kind of hit my fed up limit and I just kind of unloaded. Here's like, I don't know, top 10 reasons I will never go to that school kind of thing. And I'm like, phew, glad I got that off my chest. The guy responded very graciously, oh, okay, well, thank you. It's not for everybody. I'm like, yeah, it's not for me. <sighs> we all get back together 
And they say, hey, we're also so glad to have the president of such and such university here. And I turn around and watch as this guy walks all the way up to the front. And that was one of those moments, like, you can't hide. And I'm a big guy. Like, there's nowhere for me to hide, right? When you try to explain to an expert, um, it should be, frankly, a little bit of a humbling moment. It certainly was a humiliating moment for me. Um, I'd love to say that that's the last time I ever did anything like that. I'm sure it's not. Um, but when we think through life and we think through dealing with life, we can sometimes approach an issue, a problem, a situation. And we're so burdened to know the answers that, that we miss sometimes the bigger picture. It, it would be like standing outside of a house or a building and admiring the architecture and, and the architect is standing next to you and could explain everything they did. And we miss it. And part of what chapters 27 and 28 do for us is Job helps us to understand what happens when we try to become experts about the why questions of suffering. And in chapter 27, how his friends get it so terribly wrong and what that does. And in chapter 28, quite frankly, and this will leave some of you feeling dissatisfied this morning, how for some of these there is simply no answer here. And we need to rest there. Because God wants to actually use the why questions of suffering to lead us to a greater treasure. And so what would be the greater treasure? Uh, correcting J.K. Rowling, if you're a Harry Potter fan, correcting J.K. Rowling about a character or actually interacting with her about what she wrote. Correcting the, figure, trying to figure out a movie or trying to talk to the one who wrote it. Trying to, to figure out the structure of a building or talk to the architect who designed it. And ultimately, what Job begins to teach us is that the true treasure in going through puzzling pain is Jesus himself, not the answers to all of our questions. And so this process of wrestling through the pain of life is all about coming closer to Christ and to God. And that feels, just to be honest with you, at the outset, somewhat dissatisfying to the person who's in pain. And it usually takes a long time for a person to get there. And I don't mean long time so you should think days, weeks, months, years, but I mean a process of God working in their heart. So why Job? Why the most righteous, blameless guy on the planet? Why do all 10 of his children die in one day? Why does he lose all of his resources in one day? Why does his wife abandon him and, and so in two days total, this man loses everything. Why doesn't God love him is the raging question in his heart. Why not the wicked people that he sees around him? Why now? Why this way? Why this suffering? Why this counsel? Even his friends who come and sit with him increase his pain instead of lightening his load. Why the abandonment? All of these questions are from Job, but even his friends have all of their questions. Why won't Job repent? Why hasn't God just killed him? Why does he resist their counsel? Why won't he listen to them? Why is he attacking God? And so we want to work through it this morning, understanding what God wants to do with the why questions frequently is very different from what we're looking for from the why questions. And so we'll take them in two chapters. We'll take chapter 27 first. What happens when you get the why question wrong? And, and so... Uh, as we work through this, I want you to see the first six verses. Job starts with an oath, really, that, that seems pretty intense. 
He says it this way. Let me just follow in your Bibles. Chapter 27, verse 1. Job again took up his discourse and said, As God lives who has taken away my right, and the Almighty who has made my soul bitter, as long as my breath is in me and the Spirit of God is in my nostrils, my lips will not speak falsehood, my tongue will not utter deceit, far be it from me to say that you are right. Till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. I hold fast my righteousness and will not let it go. My heart does not reproach me for any of my days. Now, if you back up to verse 2, this is what we call an oath, or it's swearing. When he says, as God lives, and, and this is one of those moments that you're seeing lots of pain from Job. Obviously, we do not advocate it. We, if we were going to put it in modern-day language, we'd say it this way. May God be dead if I'm lying. That's one of those moments I hear somebody say like that, something like that, and I back up because God has great aim, but when he hits them with the lightning, I don't want to get the sparks. You know what I'm saying? But this is what Job is saying. I don't know how else to tell you I'm not lying. I didn't deserve this. Do you remember way back when we were studying through Corinthians? Um... Paul trying to defend himself seemed like a pointless endeavor. How do I defend myself against you thinking evil of me? How do I defend myself that on one hand you're mad because I won't take your money, and on another hand you say I'm in it for the money? It doesn't even make sense. You're nonsensical. Like how does a person defend themselves when they're being attacked the way Job's being attacked? They've got no evidence. They have no reason to believe what they're believing about Job other than their tight uh, system, do bad, get bad, do good, get good. You've done bad, you must be really bad. And your kids were worse because God killed them in a moment, but he's slow killing you. Like, what do you do with this? How do you work through this? And so Job throws this out here and basically says, may God be dead if I'm lying. One of the things that we've seen through the book of Job that I hope we're learning together is when you sit with someone who's suffering, when you sit with a person, a believer, someone who claims Christ, and they are in pain and anguish, they're grieving, you need to remember that what you see from them in their pain, grief, and sorrow is not their final landing place. So be careful how you respond to them. Be careful how you interact with them. Understand that things they're going to say, feel, experience things in those seasons of grief. And what will happen is if you feel threatened by it, like Job's friends did, you will, you will respond wrongly to them. We will miss the mark. And so what we see from Job is his first point to these guys is, is that look who I'm looking to. If he's so wicked, if Job is so evil, why isn't he acting like a godless man? Instead, what he does is he keeps hoping in God. You can see if we, if we press on in, the, in chapter 27, verse 7. Let my enemy be as the wicked. Let him who rises up against me be as the unrighteous. Now he describes what these wicked people are like. For what is the hope of the godless when God cuts him off, when God takes away his life? Now, has God cut Job off? We know the answer to that is what? No. Does Job feel like God has cut him off? Absolutely. But has Job run from God? Job feels like God doesn't love me. Has Job stopped loving God? Not at all. Questioning, why are you doing this and why don't you love me anymore, is not the same as running from them. 
Job goes on, verse 9, will God hear his cry when distress comes upon him? Job is part of his turmoil as he feels like God has abandoned him. He feels like his prayers aren't going past the ceiling. And yet, what does Job keep doing? Praying and asking. Will he take delight in the Almighty? Will he call upon God at all times? I will teach you concerning the hand of God. What is with the Almighty, I will not conceal. When you are sitting with someone who's asking why questions, long before you judge them, look and read who they're looking to. You're sitting with someone, they're weeping, they're wailing, they're gnashing their teeth, they're in deep anguish of soul and of heart. Long before there's corrective instruction, long before there's judgment, long before, it's definitely before any kind of condemnation, look at who they're looking to. Now, to be very clear, very clear, Jesus makes it very clear, uh, and I think the, the parable of the four soils is the clearest expression of this. There is suffering that comes into people's lives who have claimed Jesus, who then abandoned Jesus. The seed is sown, it seems like it's sprung up quickly, but then the, to the trials of this life, and, and there's multiple ways they can be pulled away, right? You can throw your seed on stony ground, they never receive it. You can throw your seed on ground where it goes shallow, springs up quickly, but then the cares of the world. But then you can throw your seed in ground so that it seems like the stressors, the pressures, the suffering of this world, that they think this way. I thought coming to Jesus would make my life better. All it's done is make my life worse. I don't want Jesus anymore. To be very clear, there's the kind of suffering that reveals that a person never had faith. But I'm convinced from the book of Job that lots of times we have believers that are in, in astounding pain and astounding grief like Job is, and we can have a tendency to judge his why questions of God, well, then he must not have faith. And not understand that Jesus was giving us a condition of the heart, he was not describing the totality of the process of living life here. And in fact, the very first book of the Bible was intended, Job, to teach us of what it's like when a righteous person goes through intense grief, suffering, and puzzling pain. And so the patience and the kindness is simply not there. Look to who they're looking to. Look to who they're looking to. Instead of being rash and quick to judge them as wicked. So be a careful reader of the situation of the person. And secondarily, be a cautious counselor. We can go back in verse 7. sees a real shift in the chapter that ultimately builds to verse 13. So let me read verse 7 and then read verse 13. Uh, let my enemy be as the wicked. Let him who rises up against me be as the unrighteous. So he is describing wickedness and unrighteous people. Verse 13, this is the portion of the wicked man with God and the heritage that oppressors receive from the Almighty. Job is doing kind of two huge things in this chapter. One, he's saying, I'm a man of integrity, and you can tell I'm not wicked by what I'm doing. Look at what I'm actually doing, and I'm not wicked. I have integrity. That's the first thing. The second thing is, you counselors are being wicked. He describes them here as oppressors, even. Oppressors are people who um, are tyrants. It's used in the Bible to describe people who have no mercy, 
people who have no empathy, people who lack compassion. And Job is saying, you friends have sinned deeply against God and me. Chapter 27 is a rebuke to bad counselors, to bad friends. The whole chapter is saying that God's judgment is against their wickedness and their evil. All of the judgment and the wrath of God that they think Job is under, Job is saying, get ready, it's coming to your doorstep. The real wicked ones are you. It should be terrifying to us to consider that. It should, it should be <laughs> the highest caution to us. We're in the process of teaching my oldest one to drive. And, uh, you know, as a parent, your kids grow up and you're like, oh, wow. And then, and then they go to driving school and they have to memorize this book. And, like, they know all these laws that you forgot a long time ago. They, they, right? They know all these signs. This is what it's supposed to be. Going to Publix the other day, and I was instructed that I was jaywalking. It was a fun moment. It was a fun moment. It was. It was. And I'm, like, looking over it. I'm, like, there's no crosswalk. There's no hash paint lines, whatever. And, and, I, and I, like, I feel like I was quoted to from South Carolina state law. Any obvious difference delineating where people can walk as a crosswalk. He was right. I was wrong. That's just the fact of the matter, right? Now, it, is it true? Is it true that I said, feel free to go to the crosswalk, but if you want to stay with me, I'm jaywalking? <laughs> that may or may not be true. But he knew more than I did about where the real warning sign was because he's like all up on it now, right? Like he's got to learn the law. This should be a flashing neon sign to us in doing ministry to be warned to not be like these guys. Because it's so easy to be like these guys. It should terrify us. To put this in perspective, while Job is not correct in all of his assumptions, clearly not. Why doesn't God love me anymore? God still loved him. While Job is not correct in all of his ideas about how this is working, he thought there was a system too, and the system was broken. Job never sinned in it. But to be very clear, Jesus died on the cross for how his counselors behaved. They sinned grievously. God actually puts it this way in Job 42.7. All the way through the book, after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, my anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. They are oppressive. They lack any real love. They're quick to speak instead of hearing his pain and truth. They have categories for suffering, but only ones that really mean the sufferer is at fault. They could, the sufferer of Job would really just do something different then he would feel better and he wouldn't hurt so bad. All the pain of his life is intended to teach him something. And so if he'd learned the lesson, then he could move on with life. The only categories they have put the pressure and the burden on the sufferer to escape his pain. And what is so uniquely terrible about that is the very essence of puzzling pain is they've done nothing to deserve it. And there's nothing they can do to escape it. It would be like walking up 
to someone in a wheelchair and dumping them out of the wheelchair and saying, just get up and walk. Or going to a blind person and snatching away their cane and saying, go run through the maze. All it does is highlight already the confusion, hurt, and pain that he is experiencing. It's said by many that the best thing that they did was that they sat with him and said nothing. Now, just to be very honest with you, as we looked back at chapters 1 and 2 of Job, sitting with him and saying nothing was unkind because what's clear is what they were doing when they were saying nothing was cooking up the rebukes for him. They weren't loving him in empathy as they sat with him. They were increasing in irritation as they sat with him. You ever been served by somebody and they're serving you and you can tell they're annoyed with you while they're serving you? That's who they are to him. Now, the only reason the best thing they did was sat and silent because when they started talking, it only increased his pain. Just because someone is asking why, listen now, just because a sufferer is saying why doesn't mean you have to have the answer. When you believe that you do or that you can or that you must have the answer to their why questions, then often you'll actually miss and you will lead them to miss the real treasure of the why. Be okay not knowing. Be a careful reader when you go into someone's life who's experiencing deep grief and pain, particularly puzzling pain. Be a cautious counselor as you deal with them, as you speak to them. But be okay in not knowing. I just want to read down through. Well, actually, let's do it this way. Let me, let me explain this a little bit more, and then we'll read down through the real condemnation. Hopefully the warning of that will help us. When someone says, why is this happening? And why is this occurring? And what is going on here? We, many of us have done life enough in the church or in Christianity that we could easily say, and I don't mean this dismissively, but we could easily say, we know it's for God's glory. That's true. That's true. That's not really ultimately at that moment getting to the heart of this person's struggle. It's true and it's truth they need. It's truth that's kind. It's truth that can be loving. It's also truth, though, that can be harsh and said in an unkind way and almost a dismissive way. And there's a real treasure that can happen as we quest for the why that we miss if we just have to put in, fill in all the blanks. Somebody's life is not like a fill-in-the-blank Sunday school lesson. The pain and the suffering they're experiencing is complex. It's difficult. It's nuanced. It's hard to understand and to grasp. And we can so easily miss the treasure that God intends. This is the Nebra Sky Disc. It's an ancient Bronze Age artifact. It was uncovered by treasure hunters in Germany in 1999. It's dated actually to around 1600 BC. To put that in biblical perspective, that's around the time of Moses' birth. And so it's an amazing piece of archaeological discovery and art. Um, the guys, though, who found it were robbing, and actually that pretty large dent you see at its top left was caused by their shovels with their ham-fisted efforts to dig it out of the ground. We now know it's one of the very first astrological, astronomical clocks. It has the phases of the moon depicted upon it. 
It actually has the constellation of the Pleiades depicted upon it. Uh, archaeologists believe it's probably one of, of a matching pair, and they've never found the other one. Well, these two guys go and they sell it uh, to a, a dealer in Italy for about $15,000 American equivalent. Well, later they get found out. The real worth of the Nebra sky disk is about 11 million American. But their ham-fisted efforts to dig out the treasure damaged it, and it actually cost them both more than a year in jail each for what they had done. What happens when people mishandle a treasure? It's like those of you who have seen The Sandlot, the kid who takes his stepdad's Babe Ruth-signed baseball and go uses to play backyard baseball with it. And it gets chewed up and destroyed by this mean dog. What happens when we misuse and abuse a treasure? I want to say this to you. The why questions of puzzling pain are a treasure. They're a treasure. And when we're bad counselors, we mishandle them. We damage them. We ruin them. And so whether you're one this morning who's experiencing puzzling pain, God, why are you doing this? I want to comfort your heart saying he has a treasure for you. We're going to look at that in just a moment. But chapter 27 is all about people who are ministering to those with puzzling pain and how we mishandle the treasure of the why in their life. And so I just now want to read the rest of the chapter so you get the full weight of the condemnation. Because it's not just that you miss the treasure. To be very clear, you sin. You sin against them. Verse 13, this is the portion of a wicked man with God and the heritage that oppressors receive from the Almighty. If his children are multiplied, it's for the sword, and his descendants have not had enough bread. Those who survive him, the pestilence buries, and his widows do not weep. Though he heap up silver like dust, has all the money he could have. This is a guy that sits in comfort while others are suffering. And pile up clothing like clay. He may pile it up, but the righteous will wear it. The innocent will divide the silver. He builds his house like a moth, like a booth that a watchman makes. That would be a temporary, easy, simple structure. He goes to bed rich, but will do so no more. He opens his eyes and his wealth is gone. Terrors overtake him like a flood. In the night a whirlwind carries him off. The east wind lifts him up and he is gone. It sweeps him out of his place. It hurls at him without pity. He flees from its power in headlong flight. It claps its hands at him and hisses at him from its place. This is what Job is saying. I haven't sinned to experience this pain, but you, you have sinned against me. And if you do not repent, this is your end. an amazing condemnation it's a terrifying prospect that we could go to people with all the best intentions be caught in a moment of them asking why and feel compelled to give the answer for why and we have the solution for the why of their pain and be so wrong so wrong out of a mindset that I'm helping that I actually am sinning I just want to confess to you, I've done that with people. You know, you, you study the Bible and you're like, there's these categories, right? Sometimes you hurt pain because you have sinned against God, even as a believer. Look at Corinthians. For this reason, many of you are sick and some have even died because you've taken communion wrongly. That's in the life of a believer. Or Hebrews chapter 12, that God disciplines and chastens his children. So sometimes the pain of our lives as believers is chastening and discipline from God for sinful behavior. We sow and we reap. That's Galatians. Sometimes it is. 
There's another category of pain, Romans chapter 5, that it's very clear that God sometimes intends suffering in the life of a believer to produce specifically in us the character of Jesus Christ. It's a sanctifying method for us. That's another category for why believers suffer. Why else do I suffer, Steve? Sometimes we suffer because God intends to put Jesus' sufferings on display. 1 Peter. Sometimes I suffer James because there's a real sanctification gap in my life. And so my faith needs to be purified. It needs to be, it needs to be uh, strengthened. It needs to be revealed as true. Sometimes I hurt and I suffer as a believer to prove that Jesus is better to me. I have all these categories. And I want you to know all of them are true. Absolutely every one of those is true. And sometimes I've suffered this way. Sometimes you have suffered this way. In fact, every single one of us, if we're children of God, have suffered under his discipline. Because he says in Hebrews 12, he disciplines every one of his children. All those categories are true. The very first book of the Bible tells us, though, there is some suffering that doesn't fall in any of those categories. It just is. And because Job's friends didn't have that category, the unanswered why of puzzling pain, they sinned grievously against this man and against God. And God's anger burned against them. May God forgive me for the times I've entered into someone's life and I haven't had that category. And so Job ends chapter 27, and we're like, wow, I don't want to be those guys. <laughs> you've got to be kidding me. And my guess is if you've experienced puzzling pain, you've probably had people come into your life that way. And even if no one else has said it, because <laughs> the ironic thing is I, I feel like I've had people deal that way with me, but because my heart was already immature and broken, sometimes I've preached that to my own heart and condemned myself. That God wasn't condemning me and puzzling. You ever done that to yourself? This is the person, we saw Job do this, right? Where Job was like, well, I must have done something when I was much younger to deserve this. And he went all the way back to his youth and he couldn't think of what he could have done to deserve all 10 kids dying, boils all over his body, wife's abandonment, loss of everything, servants killed, flocks stolen, and friends betraying him. And all we do is increase our own suffering in the midst of it. It's a terrifying thing. And so then chapter 28 tells us, how do we let the why question work then? And I do think that that's very similar to James' language when he tells us uh, to stay in a trial, stay under it. Don't try to run out of it. Don't try to find your own solution just to make life better. Running from painful circumstances won't ultimately bring God glory or solve the situation. It just doesn't. But we're all tempted to do that. Sarah got sick and tired of living under the weight of being told you're going to birth a baby. And now she's in her 90s. She's never been pregnant. She's infertile her whole life. She just gets weary of it. The burden is on her. Sins in Hagar. We all know what she's thinking. Let's just be honest. Because if he can't get Hagar pregnant, suddenly the pressure's not on her. But Hagar does get pregnant. He, she can't stand the pressure. And I don't say that with one ounce of judgment toward that dear saint. It was wrong. But I'm like, there go I. And so how do we actually let the why question work and churn in our hearts and our lives? That's what chapter 28 is all about. And so the first 12 verses uh, are centered on this theme that mankind is tireless in searching for the answer. 
that, that mankind will go to the ends of the earth looking for the answer and he's crafting his pursuit of anything and everything that would have value in a treasure. And so, and so all of these are quests and it culminates in verse 11 to tell you what he's looking for. So just follow along as I read. It's beautiful poetry. We'll take just a couple minutes to comment on it. Surely there is a mine for silver and a place for gold that they refine. For iron is taken out of the earth and copper is smelted from the ore. Man puts an end to darkness, searches out the farthest limit, the ore in gloom and deep darkness. He opens shafts in a valley away from where anyone lives. They are forgotten by travelers. They hang in the air far away from mankind. They swing to and fro. As for the earth, out of it comes bread. But underneath it is turned up as by fire. Its stones are the place of sapphires, and it has dust of gold. That path no bird of prey knows, and the falcon's eye has not seen it. The proud beasts have not trodden it. The lion has not passed over it. Man puts his hand to the flinty rock and overturns mountains by the roots. He cuts out channels in the rocks, and his eye sees every precious thing. He dams up the streams so that they do not trickle, and the thing that is hidden he brings out to light. What is all this intended to illustrate? Verse 12, but where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? He, he says in verses 1 through 6 that it's incredibly dangerous kind of work. It's mining kind of work. When he talks about bringing the darkness to light, he's talking about going deep down into, into a mine shaft. Uh, both my grandfathers worked in the coal mines of West Virginia. My, my mom's dad was a foreman in the coal mines in, in West Virginia. And my dad's dad uh, was a very short man. He was, he was like five foot and one, maybe two. And he actually shrunk as he got older. Um, and so they'd actually had somebody want him to be a jockey. He was so small, but he was tiny. And so he would go down into, into the mine shafts and work in the coal mines of West Virginia, both of them from Welsh backgrounds and, and the Welsh were known for their mining. And so it was dirty, brutal, difficult, incredibly dangerous work. And so Job is depicting the, the danger of going, the isolation of it, the dangling in space, hanging from ropes down in a mine shaft, chipping away at rock. And you, don't, you hope that there's going to be something there, but you don't know. Uh, when I went out to Colorado several years ago, we actually went down into a gold mine, and you could mine for fool's gold is what we call it, right? And you're chipping away, and, and at one point they cut off the lights, and it's just absolutely pitch black. It's stifling. It, it's claustrophobic down there. It's terrifying. And Job is saying, look to the extent that man will go searching for jewels and for treasure. It's incredibly difficult to get to. He actually contrasts it with getting bread out of the earth. As for the earth, out of it comes bread. He actually saying, now this is something for those of us that are not farmers. This city boy from West Baltimore, I'm like, it ain't that easy to, you know, to get bread out of the earth. I can't grow a tomato plant without killing it. I'll spend $20 to, to get a tomato I can spend 99 cents for at Walmart, right? I can't, I can't grow it. But Job is saying in agra agrarian culture, it's way easier to get bread out of the ground because you go to get a treasure out of the earth and it's by fire. It's hot and it's dank and it's dark. It's dangerous. It's difficult. He says in verses 7 and 8 that the eye of the falcon can't see it. The strength of the lion can't find it out. You could be all seeing. You could be all powerful. That won't get it for you. He says that craftiness is not enough. He depicts all this, this ideas of damming up water and changing streams. And how you think of the hanging gardens of Babylon. You think of, of Solomon's uh, porch. You think of all these amazing structures that man can come up with. He, he has the idea of you would go to like kind of the old trope of the old wise man on the mountain to get answers for it. 
You would search and search and search. It's, it's like Dr. Strange going to Comertage to get answers. It's, you'll go anywhere and everywhere to try to get the answers, and none of it, none of it gets you wisdom. He says this is what it's like searching for the why. It's hard and it's dangerous. Searching for the why in the midst of puzzling pain makes you feel all alone. It feels like you're hurting and someone in their kindness brings by a pie and it's kind and they love you and you feel blessed by it and they leave and you wake up at three in the morning still wondering why. Why? You get on the internet and you're Googling answers. Like, who's got answers? You go to counselors, who's got answers? You ask your doctor, why is this happening to me? What if you had a friend like Job sitting there with you? What if you had a friend like Job sitting there crying and weeping and why is this happening to me? Why? Why are all my children dead? Why has my wife abandoned me? Why did God take away everything? Why? Why? Why doesn't he love me? And you can sense it in their anger and their irritation. Their frustration and their confusion. How do we respond to that? It's scary and intimidating, isn't it? We so desperately want to help. We desperately want to love them. But we just came out of chapter 27 and we've already begun to learn the worst thing I can do, the worst thing I can do is think that I can give them some nice, neat, in-the-box answer. All that will do is hurt them more. And so Job says, this is what my quest for the why has been like. You, you really get the sense of Job's heart of meditating, going deeper. It's part of the reason I'm thankful is we're, we're working our way through Job. Because even in my own life, to be honest with you, the, the length of it is helping me to, to get there and to realize I'm not crazy as a believer. And God's not mad at you, folks. When you're like, I'm reading my Bible I'm listening to good music. I'm talking to friends. I'm reading books. And none of it seems to answer it. Job says that's what the quest is like for the why of this puzzling pain. And so I think the natural thing that happens is you get to a point and you might be tempted to think, but is it worth it? And so the next verses, 13 through 19, he then, it's like you can see him getting to the end of this and saying, is it worth it then, the wisdom and understanding? And now he argues in his own heart, yes, it's worth it. So verses 13 through 19 are all about the worth of the why. Verse 13, man does not know its worth. It's not found in the land of living. He doesn't mean that like, you don't know how, how much it is. He means that like it's invaluable. Man does not know its worth. It's not found in the land of living. The deep says it's not in me. The sea says it's not with me. It can't be bought for gold. Silver cannot be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, in precious onyx or sapphire. Gold and glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewels of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or crystal. The price of wisdom is above pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. From where then does wisdom come? Where is the place of understanding? Job is saying that, that nothing would help me more than if I knew the answer to my why. 
That's what he thinks. Nothing would bless me more. Now, I'll just take one of those. Just take one of those. Uh, way back in verse 16, he, he compares it to the gold of Ophir. So what in the world is the gold of Ophir? That showed up a couple chapters ago with Eliphaz, you might remember, where he compares it to the gold of Ophir. says God would be more valuable than, to, than the gold of Ophir. And so Job says wisdom, the answer to the why, would be more valuable than the gold of Ophir. Well, about 1,200 years later, Solomon actually had his minds in the gold of Ophir. And he would receive shipments from Ophir of gold from there. How much did he receive? The Bible actually tells us 34 tons of gold. Historians say that Solomon pulled out of Ophir, the gold mines of Ophir, half the gold that was known on the planet at the time. Modern day equivalent of $125 million worth. What Job is saying is this, if I only knew why God was doing this, then it would help my pain. You ever thought that? How about when someone dies and you've heard someone say, well, if just one person came to the Lord through the funeral, it would be worth it. We try to stamp a value on pain. Don't tell that to a child who's just lost their parent. Let me explain to you what that kind of valuation does to somebody. What it says is your pain is worth this amount. So what you've said to that child is you not having a mommy and daddy the rest of your life. A mommy or daddy to guide you, love you, care for you, tuck you in at night, read you a story, sing you a song, walk you down an aisle, be there with you when you have your first baby. Care for you. Comfort you. That God said it's worth it for you not to have any of that as long as Joe Schmo over here that your dad worked with got saved. And you've just put a valuation on suffering and pain that frankly I don't think is biblical and it surely isn't helpful. But why do we do that? Because we're uncomfortable with not knowing. We feel compelled to always have an answer. We feel like their why is a personal attack or is an attack on God. And we somehow have to defend him. And we'll learn this as we press through Job, just, just, but just so we know, he never, ever, ever tells Job why. And if God is willing to sit with the why unanswered, so should we. Answering the why will not ultimately be what helps a hurting heart in puzzling pain. Job thinks if he could only have the wisdom, then that would be better than all the wealth, respect, safety, and well-being of this life. Job, Job doesn't want money back. Job doesn't want, at this point, kids back. Job doesn't want health back. Job doesn't want his wife back. Job doesn't want his friends' respect. Job doesn't want the respect and the ability to do things and influence things. He simply wants to know, does God love me? And if he doesn't, why not anymore? 
And if I only could know that, then I'd be better. Wisdom is valuable, Job is saying. But he's also saying that it seems like it would be attainable. And in one sense, wisdom is. And this is where it might be confusing to us. Job is actually one of the wisdom books. You have Proverbs, it's a wisdom book. And Proverbs very much helps to build a system. If you twist a nose, will blood not come forth? If you roll a stone, will it not roll back on you? Don't poke a bear. Don't seize an angry dog by its ears. Uh, do righteous and life will be better. That's Proverbs. That's the system overall that God seems to have set up in this world. It matches Will you reap what you sow. But then you have Ecclesiastes and you find Ecclesiastes saying you can try to live with all wisdom and it doesn't seem to satisfy. And then so then you can do all wickedness and it doesn't seem to satisfy. You can do whatever your heart desires. You can build what you want to build. You can earn what you want to earn. You, you can experience every earthly pleasure that you could ever desire and none of it will last. It's all hevel. It's all a breath, a sigh. It's pointless. It's worthless. Life here, live for here is worthless it must be for something else it must be for eternity so proverbs says here's the system you should live in ecclesiastes says yes you should live in that system but that ultimately will not satisfy job comes along in his wisdom literature and says what happens when the system's broken and so there is wisdom but job is questing for one particular aspect of that wisdom why is god doing what he's doing to me that's what he wants to know. Why am I hurting this way? And the rest of it, verses 20 through 28, tell us that why actually brings us all the way home. The journey to find answers to the why is less about the answers to the question and is actually about where it leads us to. I was told this by a friend when I was in deep grief. I told him just confessionally, just honestly, I haven't actually physically seen this person in probably 18 years. It's one of those, you know, there's all kinds of bad things about social media. It's one of those blessings of social media of being able to connect with friends quickly and easily. And I told him I, I didn't feel like I was grieving well. And I wanted to grieve rightly and I wanted to grieve uh, in, in a good way. And what I meant by that, to be very clear, was I wanted to grieve in a spiritually mature way. Whatever I thought that lo looked like, I wanted to grieve safe, safely, healthily, and wisely. To be sure, there are ways to grieve that are sinful. Grieving with bitterness, wrath, revenge, and more. But I was putting on my heart a burden and a condemnation from God. As though in my grief, God's eye toward me was one of judgment. As though here's all this pain of my life, and God was also sitting back going, now let's see how he handles this one. I don't know if you've ever thought about God looking at you that way. But that is a struggle in my heart. And my friend said one of the most helpful things to me that I've ever heard. He said, what if God isn't wanting you so much to grieve well, whatever that means, but he just wants you to know he sits with you in your grief. And he just wants to be with you. From where then, verse 20, does wisdom come? Where's the place of understanding? It's hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and death say, we've heard a rumor of it with our ears. God understands the way to it. He knows its place. 
He looks to the ends of the earth. He sees everything under the heavens. When he gave to the wind its weight and appointed the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder, then he saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out. He said to man, and this is the first time God speaks to Job in the book. And it's not an audible voice. Job's remembering something God told him. Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. To turn away from evil is understanding. What if God isn't wanting you to know the answers to the why in your puzzling pain, but he wants you to know that he is with you in your puzzling pain? In his novel, The Book of the Dun Cow, Walter Weingrain Jr. describes his, the protagonist Chanticleer in the midst of his own Job-like experience. On the day that all three of his sons drown, Chanticleer trembles and roars and sobs, and then a visitor comes to him. She spends the night at his side without speaking a word, but her eyes pooled as she looked at him. The tears rose and spilled over. Wangerin calls what happens next a miracle. Nothing changed. The clouds would not be removed, nor his sons returned, nor his knowledge plenished. But there was this. His grief had become her grief. His sorrow, her own. And though he grieved not one bit less for that, yet his heart made room for her, for her will and wisdom, and he bore the sorrow. Sitting with God in our sorrow, drawing close to him in our puzzling pain, without answers to our why, can be a sweet and treasured experience. It's not about the answer, it's about the journey it takes us on the first time we see God really speaking to Job. Job's searching for wisdom. He sees wisdom's value. And so what he clings to is what he already knows God has said. And in its essence, he draws close to God. The why questions of our puzzling pain can bring us to the greater treasure of closeness with God without ever actually producing an answer to the why. How does it happen? First of all, it brings us to the end of ourselves. Nothing Nothing brings you to a greater place of humility and an end of yourself than suffering pain that there's no answer for. And humility is a prerequisite for the grace that we need in this life. 1 Peter 5, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Nothing quite reveals the boundaries of our intellect, the limitations of our understanding, the weakness of our wisdom than not having the answer to the why questions of pain. And realizing in that moment the only one we can turn to is God. Secondarily, it brings us to the architect. Rather than standing and looking back at the structure of this world, well, how has God built this world, right? How has he framed the, this world? So um, do bad, get bad. That's how that structure works. Do good, get good. That's how that structure works. And here's the columns that he put here of truth and justice. And, and here's the archway of overwhelming power. And so I know you're hurting and you were sitting across from someone that's weeping. Why, why, why? And, they, and you say, I'm explaining this to you. I'm explaining this to you. This is the way the building of life works. And, and it's almost like a mathematic algebraic equation. We put this in, we do parentheses first, then we do uh, multiplication. We're going to do the division. We're going to cross references over here. This is why. And so this is why you're hurting. This is why you spent your whole childhood abused. This is why that drunk driver killed 
Somebody, this is why you're suffering. This is why this happened to you. This is why you have that diagnosis. This is why you have that financial failure. This is the structure. This is the structure. And God is not on mission in the midst of their puzzling pain to give them more structure. He wants them to be able to turn and say, I don't know. Let's look to the architect. And so what we've got to be on mission for with those that are in the middle of deep grief and puzzling pain is to help them as best we can. And sometimes it's simply by sitting and weeping with them and entering empathetically into their suffering and saying there's no answer and you're not crazy that there's no answer. But there's only one. There's one in this whole universe that we can turn to and draw close to. Job says it would be a deep treasure, but I can't find it. It's fascinating because when you read through, and this is one of those rare moments that the language is really helpful to us, original language, all the way through chapter 28, whenever he talks about wisdom, it's the wisdom, the wisdom, the wisdom, the wisdom. And so that's part of the ways we know that he's looking for the why. He's thinking of a very particular way. And finally, when he gets down to the end, it's not the wisdom, but it's knowing him who is wisdom. Colossians 2 puts it this way, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding, and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. What the second part does is call us to walk by faith. He says, behold, the fear of the Lord. That is, it's like saying God is wisdom. Reverencing God is wisdom. Honoring God, worshiping God, glorifying God is wisdom. You're drawing close to the embodiment of wisdom. And then he says, turn from evil is understanding. What the first part does is say draw to wisdom. What the second part does is really say is walk by faith, not by sight. If the wicked prosper, why be holy? If the righteous suffer, why not live how we want? Because out of loving reverence for God, we want to be like him. We want to know him. We want to obey him. We want to love what he loves and hate what he hates. Does God really love Job? Jesus will say it this way later. You're my friends if you do whatever I tell you. Yes. Yes, God loves Job. God loves all those who follow him because he has, they love him because he's first loved them. What brings us there? What brings us to that side of God? And so what's interesting is in the midst of puzzling pain in my life, there's been so many times that I have felt like Job, if I could just know why, I'd feel better. And Job is helping to teach me that that's not true. And instead, even the interactions I have with God where I'm crying out, God, I don't know and I don't understand and I don't know how I can do this and I don't know how I can function like this and I don't know how I can bear under this weight. God, don't you see? Don't you know? Even the fact that in that moment I'm crying out to God is a kind treasure. Suddenly, in the not knowing, 
My eyes are, it's like, not all of you wear glasses. You know what it's like when you get a new prescription? And you're like, I can see. Suddenly wrestling with those why questions of life, you can see God at work in your life. You see his hand. Suddenly your eyes are open and you're awakened. It's like your senses are hypersensitive to his work, his kindness, and his love. And I think what's really interesting about that is one day we'll die or he'll come back. And if we know him, we'll walk into glory and he will look at us and he will say, enter in. Well done. Well done, my good and faithful servant. And I don't think I'll care about the why questions anymore at all because I'm right there with him. And I will realize in that moment that's all that mattered anyway. And so you know what my prayer is? That God would help us to understand as we wrestle with the whys of our own heart or with others that God actually wants to use those why questions to lead me to a greater treasure. And the treasure is him. Not the answer, but him.